0: Welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, and oftentimes I'm conducting my interviews by Skype, but today I'm doing something a little different because I'm interviewing somebody who is here in Austin, Texas, who happens to have a recording studio. So instead of just being in my daughter's bedroom with my computer and my little, you know, my microphone, I am actually in the recording studios at the Charfin Institute with Alex Charfin, and we are going to have a great talk about entrepreneurship because Alex knows this stuff. In fact, he is the author of The Entrepreneurial Personality Type, which is a little book that I have to say is one of the coolest things that I've seen because I'm holding it in my hand and it says it is the first and final edition. He only printed 500 and very clearly it says there will be no reprints. And his idea is that these 500 books will be shared a thousand times. A hundred now, times, a hundred times. A hundred to- I'm going for a thousand.
1: You're <laughs> so thinking Tom, too small. So you're in, you're in. Can, can I have one prepared for you? You can. Okay, You cool. can. I, I get cool. one of the 500 and Absolutely. I will share it. Absolutely.
0: So Alex, thank you for being on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Oh, it's good to be here with you, Tommy. It's
1: great to see you again.
0: Yeah, no, I actually met Alex about, I don't know, six or seven years ago when a speaker at a big real estate conference that he was putting on, the speaker got the flu and was in his home throwing up. Oh, and yeah, called Glenn. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was going, he went down. And he went down <laughs> and he called me about an hour before the lunchtime keynote and he said – can you go down to downtown Austin and speak to 300 of the top real estate agents in the country? And I said, yes, I can. And I walked in and, and with almost no preparation, delivered a keynote to Alex's conference. And that's To a where, standing ovation, by to, the to way. To a, standing, to a standing, ovation. standing ovation. That's right. And so that's where we met. But he has done a lot of things with his business. He started off focused on real estate. He is now focused on consulting and coaching with entrepreneurs and helping them grow their businesses. But rather than me telling you what he does, Alex, why don't you tell everybody about yourself and about the Charfin Institute.
1: Thanks, Tom. So, uh, so I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, and uh, my wife and I co-founded this company in 2007. We were initially involved in real estate, but today our primary and, and really our, our driving business is working with entrepreneurs at all levels. We developed a body of content, the entrepreneurial personality type. That gives us a profound understanding of entrepreneurs. And so we also have products and coaching. We call it consulting for entrepreneurs at all levels. So um, it's about the most fun I've ever had in business, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) So did
0: you ever have a job working for like a regular company or did you go straight into entrepreneurship?
1: Um, So, you know, I had jobs, but I was always an entrepreneur. So I, I worked as a waiter for a short period of time for cash. Uh, I, I worked with, for one of my mom's friends for a little while and I worked for my family business. So, you know, I, I, knew what it was like to work for someone starting out with my dad. Um, but, but the whole time I was working for someone else since about nine or 10 years old, I was always trying to do something on the side.
0: So you sort of were one of these people, they say entrepreneurs are born or made you were born.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I knew I was different from a very, very young age and I also, um, I didn't get along very well in the world, and when I, when I found business, my dad had a business, we had a family business, and when my dad took me to the, to the warehouse, that was a place where I felt comfortable. You know, business created a context, it was less chaotic than the real world, and, um, and I felt at home there from a very young age. So what were some of the first businesses that you started? Oh, um... So when I was a really young kid, I think like multiple things, like we sold artwork that we made one Saturday, you know, like we were always trying to figure out a way to get the neighbors to buy stuff. (laughs) When I was uh, when I was in my teens, I was selling candy to the kids at school. So in junior high, I had a really thriving candy business. I was making about two hundred dollars a week. And then uh, they changed the rules at the school, so I couldn't do it anymore. Then I changed how I was doing it. Then they said you couldn't do it unless you were you, were, you know part of a charity. So then I, I like became part of a charity, and then they made it so no students could sell anything. They, they like the Irvine, Irvine Unified School District changed district rules because of me. I was pissed. <laughs> it was the first time like the man took me out of my business, and then. You know, I had a couple other starts and stops, and then in my teens, about sixteen, I started a company window washing with a friend of mine, and he—they kind of fell out. I did it with two friends; they fell out. I kept driving it, and I ended up with a window washing company that was making about thousand dollars a week. It's pretty good. It's about a you know five hundred time increase. And uh, at seventeen years old, all of the paperwork I'd signed, all of the uh, insurance documents, everything was invalid. And so they found out like <laughs> nine or ten months after I had all this stuff, and I had to sell the company. And so those were two of the earlier ones. So now that you're a grown up and you have this thriving <laughs> business, what is it that you absolutely love about
0: the lifestyle of being an entrepreneur?
1: You know, Tom, I think that I'm one of those entrepreneurs that I don't know that I could do anything else. You know, I think, I think a lot of society says, look, you know, entrepreneurs are lifestyle driven, they're success driven, um, they're money driven or, 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 you know, accolade driven. And, and the fact is, I think that most of us um, are doing what we're doing because we just couldn't do couldn't follow someone else's rules anymore. You know, I mean, and and just in the brief conversation before we had started recording, you know, it's interesting how you've completely remade the conference speaker into this way more dynamic thing. That's, you know, you've you've reinvented yourself into something that has a lot more application with basically the same skill set. That's the entrepreneurial personality type. Like you tell me you could do that within a corporation. You can't. And so what I, what I love about my lifestyle is that, you know, I, I have the opportunity to guide my contribution. And I have the opportunity through inspiring the people around me to create a greater contribution. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm a capitalist and I'm wealthy. <laughs> and I continue to become wealthier on purpose. And, uh, but I think, you know, entrepreneurs are primarily driven By our desire to make a change and to create a contribution and we should just admit that up front because in a capitalist system capital flows to contribution. So for me I get to work and do what I want. I get to exist in a capitalist system because for me I remove the pressure and noise and that's what I see in the world and I get to make the contribution I want. That's I I don't know that you could have a better life. So you work with your wife as well, right? Mm -hmm. She's part of
0: your business and Mm -hmm. has been from the very beginning. You guys Mm -hmm. work together. What's that like? What is it like to be a husband and wife entrepreneurial team?
1: I don't know any other way. So Katie and I... Started working together just if, just I think it was just a few weeks or maybe a month and a half or two months w- when we got together and so we've always done that and um, I think it's it's a privilege you know I think it's interesting because neither one of us would want it any other way and if you if any was to if anyone was to examine our relationship they would probably use words like codependent or um, <laughs> you know unhealthy or things like that because. Like today, my wife's not in the office in the morning, and that that unsettles me. I would rather that she was here. I know where she is, but I would rather she was here. It's it's much more comforting knowing she's down the hall. Um, and quite frankly, Tom, like we we wouldn't have this company without Katie. When when we started it, I I spoke, you know, I went out and spoke and and uh, traveled the country, and Katie built it. And so today, I'm the CEO, which in our organization means like not anything to do with the detail because I can't, I'm not good at those things. And, and Katie runs everything, you know, she, she really runs this place. And so I might act as a draw and as a spokesperson and I drive most of our content, but without her and, um, and Mark, our COO, but really without Katie translating for the team, it would be really hard to move forward. So you guys have a couple of kids. We do. And how do you incorporate the kids into this lifestyle? So we, um, you know, Because we're entrepreneurs, we can choose to do what we want with our kids. So we unschool. Um, mm-hmm. they, they don't do the traditional school thing. Uh, my daughter, Reagan, who just turned nine on the 16th just a couple days ago, um, she works here. So on Monday, she comes to the office from about nine to – she used to come from nine to one and then protested so consistently. We let her stay until the end of the day. And now she's pushing for her second day. This week, she came to the office from 9 to 5 or 5.30 and then we went home and I had a presentation downtown. She went with me. She worked from 9 to 9. So my nine-year-old pulled a 12-hour day and got up the next morning and asked when she could do it again. And I remember being motivated like that, you know? And so what we do with our kids, I I think being an entrepreneur gives you options and then being opinionated lets you follow through on on them. And I'm an entrepreneur with big opinions. And so I had trouble with school, you know? I, I think that You know, we use some code words these days like socialization and bullying for torture and prison, (laughs) right? And, and I, you know, for me, it was 30 prisoners in one garden. It wasn't enough. I was beat up. I had a really hard time. And my girls um, went to school for a little while and we started to see them regress, not talk, really have some trouble. Then we sat down and talked to them about what was going on. And here's what's what's amazing. When when you take kids and you say, hey, I want you to learn this hammer and nail. You know, like I want you to learn multiplication tables. It's so demotivating. I remember trying to do that as a kid. I couldn't learn multiplication tables to save my life. And I love my father and I respect him. And I always wanted to, to do what he wanted me to do. That's why I've done so, so well in business, why I did so well. I remember him sitting there with me trying to help me get him. And I couldn't. As soon as I figured out the multiplication was how you calculated margin and commission. I figured it out in the afternoon. Because when you have an agenda, when you have the destination, the outcome, you go. And so my girls, both of them, they elect where they want to go. And here's what's amazing, Tom. If, if you want to teach someone a hammer and nail, build a house. The hammer and nail is a byproduct. And you know what? They'll be good at it.
0: Right. Well, and I have two daughters. And I have much older daughters. I have a high school, stu- a high school I'm sorry, a college freshman and uh, an eighth grader. And both of them elected to go to magnet schools, So they're in the traditional schools, but they self-selected not to be in the regular population to go into other like sort of alternative programs. And they're not like alternative learning by any means. But what both of them have found is that when you have the expectation set at a higher level, everybody sort of rises to that level. sure. And even as teenagers, they noticed that that wasn't necessarily true in every school. So do you think that the kids of entrepreneurs get an advantage because they get to see that there's different ways to do things, even if they're in a more traditional schooling situation? Do you think they're
1: exposed to the fact that the world can be what you want it to be? Sure. But I think that that's actually a disadvantage and, and I have a totally different way of looking at it. I think that, you know, one of the challenges for us of being entrepreneurs is that we all know that we felt different when we were younger. We all know we went through things that made us feel different. We all had challenges and issues. And, and what we've done with our children is we have spent as much time as we can increasing their awareness levels. So we tell them they can do whatever they want. We tell them that um, they're capable, that they can move forward. And we do everything we can to convince them that their destiny is theirs. And then we put them in a school system where I think the kids of entrepreneurs are at a severe disadvantage because where school may work for some kids, the kids who are restless, ask too many questions, can't sit still, are driven to change the status quo, want to improve things and have to understand the outcome before they start are the kids that get every label in the book. You know. And I think that the challenge is for most of us, um, and Tom, I, I, I work with a lot of crazy successful people. And you'd be shocked at what percentage has been labeled bipolar, ADD, ADHD, uh, depressive, <laughs> manic, all of those things. And, and, you know, some of those labels are so overwhelming. People don't get over them. You well, know?
0: and I told the story on uh, an episode like three or four interviews back on
1: cool things here
0: is that I had an eighth grade teacher who I said I wanted to write books. And she told me that my grammar and my spelling was atrocious and I had better come up with a new dream. Yeah. And I didn't write for decades. Yeah. And now I've published, you know, 11 books. And what I learned was all you have to do is get a good editor. Your spelling and grammar can get fixed. Plus, that teacher wasn't very forward thinking. She did not foresee the invention of Microsoft Word because guess what? It corrects my grammar and spelling as I type. So, you know, she saw the world one dimensionally and the world changed and I'm able to, you know, write a whole bunch of books.
1: Well, you know, and, and that's, that's part of the issue. That's why I think that entrepreneurs' kids are so fucked in school <laughs> because – and I use that term because sometimes it's the right word, you know? Here's why. If you, if you look at how we learn as entrepreneurs – psychology understands that there's a subset of the population that learns asynchronously and and it's the dumbest term in history because what they're saying is you don't learn the same types of things, right? The same. So you don't learn in, in, in separate disciplines in the same way or at the same speed according to what measurement system. So what they're saying is if you can't read this much, hold the pencil this way, talk this way and your auditory skills are this way, right? So let's look at all the places we can grade you. And if they're not, even according to the scale they made up, then you learn asynchronously. And often that's a sign of a like, learning deficit. Tom, I, I, I've spent my entire career in the executive suite of Fortune 500 and Global 100 companies. I've, I've watched friends of mine transition from humble means to billionaire. I've been in the jets. I've been on the helicopters. And the fact is, is that when you get to that level, when somebody says, hey, does anyone have a learning disability? It's just a topic of conversation because everybody's been there. And 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 it's so odd that when we look at the disproportionate number of billionaires who are dyslexic, learning disabled, attention deficit, bipolar, that we don't start saying, hey, maybe there's a sign of brilliance here. Right. You know, and, and the fact is we we as an organization look at it and we say the same things that get us judged and and, and you know, for the most part, have people telling us we don't feel right our whole lives are the same things where we create enormous outcomes. We are misunderstood.
0: Sure, I, I I agree. And even just in my business being a speaker, sometimes people are like, oh, well, we need to hire the person who has the PhD. Right. And it's like, what does that have to do with them being able to you know, relate anything to your audience? And yeah. sometimes some of the smartest people are the worst speakers. And I actually was at a conference and the speaker was horrible. And the meeting planner said, yes, but he was so smart. We were honored to like have him here. And right. I thought- but that wasn't what the audience came for. They didn't come to sit. Well, they're not coming back. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, you're exactly right. And, and we can justify it all we want. But my belief is just because someone's smarter, they've done something cool, doesn't mean they're going to be a great speaker. And the same thing is true just because somebody, you know, mastered an A in a history test in, you know, 12th grade doesn't mean they're going to be able to grow a billion dollar business.
1: Well, and, and more importantly is this, the fact is, is, you know, I've, I've, I spend a lot of time with, with successful entrepreneurs, not normal entrepreneurs, successful. Because normal entrepreneurs make $68,000 a year and on average can't really pay their bills or behind on at least two of their, their obligations. Like that's fact, that's real, right? Um, but I go to the rooms where people pay $25,000 to get in, you know, and I'm a speaker and I get to talk to them and see what's really going on. And when you talk to them and you ask them, you know, have you been told you were broken? Have you been told fundamentally you couldn't move forward? And I asked the question very directly. I actually read the list of criteria for bipolar from the DSM. And I ask them to stand up as soon as three or more affect them. And and you know what, Tom, there hasn't been a single audience where 90% or 100% of the room wasn't standing up.
0: So Alex, you've worked with a lot of successful entrepreneurs in several different industries. So what advice do you have for somebody who's listening to this show, and maybe they, maybe they are a new entrepreneur, but maybe they're that person who's making that average of $68,000 a year, yeah. or yeah. maybe they're someone who's stuck in a job and they felt they kind of got labeled and, totally. and followed the path. Yeah. What advice do you have? Or also, a big topic that's come up on a lot of recent shows is people who get stuck in what I've de- deemed the high middle, meaning they've done okay, and they've taken that success as, well, yes. I've done okay. Yeah. What advice do you have for any of those people who want to go
1: out and really grow something? Yeah, still, thanks for asking the question, Tom. Because so first, none of my answers fit in Twitter posts. I think you've probably already noticed that, right? <laughs> and uh, and we take this really seriously because um, I, you know, right before we started recording, I was telling you we coached for a few years without a context. We didn't have like the right basal information, and we realized it's really hard for most entrepreneurs to create success. But what's even more challenging is When you say high middle, here's what I see. Most entrepreneurs that have created some level of success look back and don't really understand the tools that got them there, or even worse, don't know how to scale forward. There's 29 million businesses in the United States, and 26 million of them are sole proprietorships. It's one person. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs look at the sole proprietorship as the boutique business or the independent, but it's also the most at risk you can be. And because it, whether you're making $10,000 an hour, $10 an hour, $10 million an hour, you are at the exact same risk of losing 100% of your income. And uh, so for the entrepreneurs who, who, who want to go forward, for the person who, who's wondering, am I, I would say you probably are, we have a simple equation. It's four parts. And uh, we call it the contribution equation. How do you get to that greater contribution? So here's the first step, Tom. Entrepreneurial personality types, people like us, people with restless agitation. If you're in a job thinking I should leave, that's restless agitation. Um, we have more pressure and more noise in our lives than most people. You can tell observationally from being around other people that they they have less than you do. We're driven. We want to change things. I mean, the person who has the motivation to change the status quo is always going to have some pressure and noise. You're swimming upstream. And, and the rest of the population clings desperately to the status quo. So the first step for us is to lower pressure and noise. And, and here's, here's what we tell every entrepreneur. You know, you, you succeed through awareness, only through awareness. You, you think it comes from other places, but it's through awareness. And that happens through breathing, hydration, nutrition, and movement. And it's funny because we coach entrepreneurs to be successful, and we have ta- tactics that you can run your whole business with, and we do, you know, huge programs where we run – Side by side with $50 million a year entrepreneurs and their entire executive teams. But we start everything with breathing, hydration, nutrition, and movement. And that's how you lower pressure and noise. And then the way you continue to do that is in a leadership position or as an entrepreneur is you narrow your focus. You figure out where you're going. You you make sure you're not overloading yourself, overwhelming yourself. The second step of the contribution equation is you ask for protection and support. The person who grew up being told, stop, sit down, sit still, don't move, right? Or, or gaming the system, because some, some of us had a good time in school. I didn't, but some of us had, I had years where I did. And, and in those years, what I was doing was gaming the system, right? And, and those people don't, we don't know how to ask for help. We suck at it. In fact, if there was like one skill, you could say, what is every entrepreneur really challenged by on average? asking for help
0: story of my life.
1: Right. Yeah, totally. Right. And, and so, so, you know, and then we're taught dumb things like delegation and and delegation when it's taught in business schools, like you make a list that somebody else is going to do for you. Right. Remember those rules? And then you get, you open a business, you make the list, you hand it to a person. You're like, what the hell? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Why doesn't this work? Right. Right? And, And the fact is, is that delegation is a myth. People who grow businesses, people who are in leadership positions that inspire people, they ask for protection and support. They offer protection and support, and they do it with a level of transparency where they're telling the people around them what they're feeling, not their interpretation of what they're feeling. And let me give you the difference, Tom. See, we think we're asking for help because we say, you know, I was uncomfortable yesterday in that meeting. So I think it's because I didn't have the right sales numbers. So today I'm going to go in and drive my entire team to give me sales numbers. That's, that's a typical entrepreneurial pattern. Billionaires have this pattern. I was uncomfortable in that sales meeting yesterday. I'm going to go tell my sales manager I was uncomfortable and see why. Because you know why? He'll tell me. But if I go in and I drive sales numbers and I draw a conclusion, I'll find what I want or I'll cause chaos. But when I go to an executive and I've watched, Tom, I've watched the wealthiest people in the world walk into a room. I'm friends with them. They walk into a room of 25 people. And, and all they do is, is use judgment as to whether the person looks comfortable or not. And then they finish when they're comfortable. And they say things like, well, you tell me how you're going to do it. Okay, well, how are you going to finish that project? And then they ask details and they watch for the person to be congruent. They watch if they made them comfortable. Then they walk out of the room. And you know what's being said in the room? How does that guy know every project every one of us is working on? And walking down the hall, I'll ask, like, how do you know every project every one of those people is working on? Oh, I have no clue. I just look for the responses. I want to make sure my team knows what they're doing. If they, and so you know what? When we start letting our team tell us, when we let them know we're uncomfortable, because that's, that's what these guys say. They say things like, I'm not comfortable with your answer. Tell me why. You know, prove that to me. Can you show me that tomorrow? Can you give me a little bit more information there? You know what happens? You get comfortable. And, and the most successful people in the world look like they're having a ball because they are. They offload the discomfort they feel to the team around them through asking for protection and support. And then the third step, and here's where it's interesting, you lower pressure and noise, you ask for protection and support, you offer it, and the third step is your strengths and abilities just show up. Here's something funny. I ask people all the time, how much of what you learned in school are you using today to make money? What percentage do you think it is for you?
0: Oh, it's low. I I don't want to make up a number, but low. Very low, right? Where did the rest of it come from? Experience.
1: Yeah, but where? Like, where is that experience? Because you're a speaker and like speaking is a pretty special skill. It's, it's the thing that most people in the world are scared of. Sure. Like you didn't go out one day and say, I'm going to become a speaker. You know, I'm, the, I'm, not, I'm terrible at this, right? Well, kind of. I mean, I wasn't terrible at it, but I, it was a learned skill. But there was something there that made you want to do it. Yeah, there was
0: a, I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid. Okay, and so it's been there for a long it, time. It gave me that ability to sort of fill that gap that I didn't have that I never pursued being an actor.
1: So here's what's interesting, Tom. As, as people, as entrepreneurs, we go out and we go through this desperate pursuit of skills and abilities in our life. We go to classes where they tell us what's wrong with us. We go to um, you know, schools where they stuff all kinds of information in our heads that we're not going to use. We go out in this pursuit of information almost in a haphazard and often random way. And the fact is, when we lower pressure and noise, when we increase protection and support, the skills and abilities show up. They're just there. I mean, how many times, you you know this happens to you as a speaker, where you're in a situation and you react in a way where later that day you're thinking, how the hell did I know that? (laughs)
0: <laughs> right? Well, I use, I often use the example of when I spoke for your organization, because now I've given over 500 presentations, either as a master of ceremonies, as a breakout speaker, as a, as a keynote speaker, I've, I've done over 500. And there comes some level when, uh, from repetition where you get good. But back when I did that for you, I probably hadn't given a hundred. I mean, that was seven yeah. years ago. Yeah. And I was not really necessarily prepared to speak to 300 of the top real estate agents in the country and get that standing ovation. However, I knew I had to deliver. There was pressure. Your lunch was going to fail because the speaker was barfing. All oh, this and stuff. he's a good friend of ours, too. Right, so you exactly. were covering somebody. And I was covering for somebody. And so what happened was is I sort of walked into that room and I knew the other thing was I showed up with my little uh, computer because I had my PowerPoint ready that I just pulled off of a standard presentation that I do. And you said, oh, we don't use PowerPoint at my event. And I was like, oh. Ah! I go, give me three minutes. And I took the back of a business card and I wrote down three points and I just set it like a little table that was up there and I just let it go. And I use that example seven years later with people all the time that when you're ready, you'll perform at the level you need to perform. What did
1: you tell yourself going into that presentation?
0: You know, I don't remember exactly, but I know from other presentations that I told myself, I took a deep breath and I said, you can do this and you have to do this. Why did you have to do it? Because I was filling in for Clint and I didn't want to screw up. You didn't know who I was. I didn't want to come up and be a bomb for some guy who was, you know,
1: letting me sort of walk on his stage unknown. So was it about you? No, not at all. Who was it about? The audience. Yeah. So here's the next step of the contribution equation. <laughs> I like it when the uh,
0: guests on the show actually start interviewing me. I do that a lot. Yeah, so that's all right. sorry.
1: We are now on the uh, <laughs> cool things entrepreneurs <laughs> do with Alex Charlie. <laughs> so, so here's, here's the, the fourth step. So, so if you lower pressure and noise and you ask for and offer protection and support, you will have skills and abilities show and then you can make your greatest contribution. And that last part's so important because here, here's the biggest frustration that I see in, in, in entrepreneurs is, is the difference between the contribution we want to make and the infrastructure we've built to, in which to make it and so many on when i when i go out and speak especially in the more successful rooms when i say on a scale of 1 to 10 you know where where is your desire to make a contribution most of the time the answer is somewhere in excess of 10 you know people say 12 25 a million you know those types of things so you know that it's on their mind and you know, the challenge is, is if you do not lower pressure and noise, if, if you allow too much to remain in your life, if you don't ask for protection and support, then you're going to limit how much you show up in the world and you're going to limit your contribution. So you flip that and you aggressively lower pressure and noise, hydration, breathing, movement, um, you know, nutrition, and then asking for help, bringing in people that will take things off of your plate, not overwhelming yourself and, and really making sure that you're moving forward through metrics and measurement. And then, uh, you know, asking for protection and support your strengths and abilities show you make your contribution. It it works. So Alex, I got a billion more questions for you.
0: (laughs) But first, I got to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work, so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing cool people like Alex Charfin. Mm-hmm. So if you want to start a podcast, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So Alex, you made reference before that, you know, you, you work with some very successful people and a lot of them are friends of yours. So how important
1: is networking to an entrepreneur? Um, you know, I think, I think you have to be careful with networking. I think it can completely screw you up. Um. I think, I think uh, it, it, it's gotten to the point where that's almost a weird term for me, Tom. I think networking, the way that most people approach it, is, is pretty broken. And, uh, and there's this, uh, this, this belief that if I, I call a bunch of people who are doing things that interest me and I ask them to go to coffee, that, like, that's networking. You know, and it's, it's really, it's hard for me because I have a lot of people contacting me in that way and I don't know what to do with it. You know, I think that, um, making meaningful contacts and, uh, letting people know what your agenda is and, and creating a Rolodex of people who know who you are is the only way you're successful. But I think that, that, um, and I think you teach this stuff, well, right? Well, I was just going to
0: say, you bring up a really interesting point that often gets <laughs> overlooked. And that is that the definition of networking has been hijacked in totally, our society. Totally, Because what it really is, is it's the creation of long-term and mutually beneficial relationships. So Not going to then, coffee. Well, it's, it, there may be coffee. There may it's, be, but, but it's, that, it's, it's, it's not just. No, picking someone's brain over coffee is picking someone's brain over coffee. The creation of the keywords there are long-term and mutually beneficial yeah. relationships. Now those can be created and started in lots of different ways. They can be, you know, Sometimes people meet online and they never get face-to-face. Sometimes it happens at a conference. Sometimes it happens because yeah. somebody introduced you. Sometimes it's organic. Sometimes it's your neighbor. But it's that long-term and mutually beneficial relationship where both parties or all the parties succeed more because of the relationship than they would have without it. So nowhere in there is schmoozing, getting someone's card. It's just creating long-term mutually beneficial relationships. So in that
1: case, it, you know, if, if you take that definition um, – then it's the only thing that's important. You know, we, we usually say or we not usually we tell people um, entrepreneurs accomplish nothing alone and we accomplish very little standing still. So build a team or join a team and go fast. And today your opportunity to build the team is overwhelming. You know, I have 20 people here in our office. But our total team probably is in excess of 100 today. We have people here. We have people um, who work with our accounting firm in India. We have outsourced accounting people. We have outsourced writers, outsourced marketing. Um, you know, we have a massive team. And, and, you know, that comes through building meaningful long-term relationships. We don't even talk to a contractor unless we expect multiple years. We don't have time. And so, so it is, it's, it's critical. I think, you know, we, we, when it comes to a business, we, we tell people, you know, there's no such thing as an awesome company. There's just awesome people that have all been convinced to work in the same place.
0: Well, it's fascinating because like sometimes there'll be like people who are looking to hire me to speak at their conference and they'll be like, oh, we don't really want the networking speaker. I'm like, oh my God, don't, please don't call me that. (laughs) You know, and and yet it's funny when people see me, they're like, that's exactly what we want at our conference. And it's a shame that the word has all these misnomers that go with it. I've, you know, I've worked with some other people on this topic on how do we come up with a new word that, you know, can get adopted. Well, I think
1: what's happened, Tom, is that, that, you know, when you have, Here's where I think that this got screwed up. You've got people who are teaching other people who haven't achieved anything, you know? And so, so, so where, where I, cause I've asked kids like when they contact me and say, Hey, can we go to coffee? Say, Hey, who told you, who told you to do this? This isn't a normal behavior. This is clearly something you learned, right? And a lot of times it's like a college professor or some speaker somewhere who says, Hey, you, you send out a hundred emails and you'll get 10 back. Yeah, that's never me, by the way. Yeah, I never say no. contact a
0: stranger and try to pick their brain.
1: And you know what though, here's here's if a kid contacts me or if a, if a professional contacts me and they say, Hey, I saw your video. Here's what it meant to me. Here's why I had a reaction to it. I'd love to be able to ask you a couple questions. I get back to them a hundred percent of the time. You know, when, when somebody contacts me and says, hey, I'm trying to launch a business, I need help, I don't even want to reply because <laughs> it's such a terrible question, such a terrible way to approach someone. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think that your network will mean everything in your entire life. I mean, I think, you know, when, when you look at someone who's as defective as I am and who, who has, um, like, I, I've been diagnosed with so many disabilities. If I got him tattooed on my arm, I'd have to go up the other one. And, you know, you look at how I've created success and it's only through surrounding myself with people who, um, you know, allow me to do the very few things that I'm good at. And then also with creating a a, a global network of people who, who trust me. So Alex, I call the show cool things entrepreneurs do. Yeah. What is the coolest thing that you're doing with your company right now? By far the coolest thing that's going on right now is just some of the new relationships we're making. (laughs) This is a good story. I'll I'll give you this will put things in context to give you an idea of how cool things are. When I was younger, I, I, I really was obsessed with success because I was picked second to last for a sports team at 11. That made me feel like, hey, you know, there might be some potential here. And I wasn't last, hey. Yeah, no, really, I, it's funny. When I met my wife, one of the first things I told her was, well, I always look at things as the, you know, if I'm not last, then I'm making a tremendous amount of progress. And she thought that was negative. I'm like, you don't understand. That's the most positive way to look at things, right? And um, so when I was 26, I, uh, or 25 or 26. I was driven by what I, what I thought was success money. And, um, I was making a tremendous amount. I, uh, I had a consultancy. I was, uh, I had a a nice place, but I was putting away a lot of money. I was buying a lot of property. I had nice cars. I had all the stuff. I even had a picture of a Ferrari up on my wall, like a dream board. You know how we all had that stuff. And, um, a friend of mine gave me this book called the monk who sold his Ferrari by Robin Sharma. And he wrote it in 99 and I got it a few years later and I read it and and I read it. It was one of those books that I like moved around my house a whole bunch of times because I didn't want to read it because I thought it was going to tell me not to buy the Ferrari and I had it up on the wall. (laughs) So I'm like, ah, you know, and I think that's why my friend gave it to me. It's probably a lot of why my friend gave it to me now that I think about it. And I read it finally and- Um, it, it didn't, you know, it, 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 it changed things. It gave me this new view. It started a, started a lot of questions. I was reading other books at the time, but that one really kind of gave me this new view of what business could be, what contribution within a business ecosystem could look like. And the Ferrari poster came down. (laughs) (laughs) So in June of this year, I'm in an event and, uh, and I spoke, I gave a 10 minute talk and about 10 seats away from me was Robin Sharma. Oh, wow. And you know, to give you context, Tom, Robin sold over 10 million books. Like, that's crazy. You know, there, there are, you know, this multiple best-selling authors with less than 100,000 books sold.
0: Sure. And, and I mean, it only takes like 15,000. Sometimes in a week. less. Yeah. Sometimes less. You like, know, sometimes
1: as little as six or seven. Yeah. In a week to hit the New York Times bestseller. 10 million.
0: Yeah. That's a lot. 10 million.
1: Books. 40 yeah. languages. Like, yeah. this guy's an icon. Yeah. Yep. He's one of the top like 10 authors in the world. Like, J.K. Rowling's way up there, right? But Robin's in that top 10. And, um, so he, I sat down and a few minutes later he passed me a note and, you know, I did what any human being would do when Robin Sharma passes them a you note, your pants. no, I took a picture of it cause I was so worried I might lose it. I took a picture and emailed it to myself immediately. And then I'm like, oh man, maybe I should follow up. Right. Cause it said something like, um, Hey, we have a lot in alignment. We should talk. And I wrote back and said, Robin, I know there's a lot of alignment because you helped me get here. I'd love to talk. And, and we had this conversation on a Saturday where I'm so, so first I programmed his number into my phone and Tom, I knew he was calling. And when he called, I still got like a physical response to seeing the name Robin Sharma. Like it, it still gives me a little like butterfly feeling, right? <laughs> and he and I had this hour and a half conversation. It was one of those where you go from hello to like super deep, really fast and we connected at a level that was amazing. And he, during the conversation, asked me if I would speak at his event. And I remember, like, I was so overwhelmed by the fact that when I was on the phone with somebody who had really changed my life, I think I gave away probably, you know, 500 to 1,000 copies of Monk Who Sold His Ferrari when I was in my 20s. Like, once I read it, I wanted everybody to. <laughs> and. And I, I came out of my office that day after talking to Robin and Katie. Said, "How was the call?" And I said, "It was. Are you kidding? I was talking to Robin Sharma. It was amazing." She goes, "Really? What did he say?" I said, "Well." I'm either speaking at the Titan summit or I just committed to buying two tickets. Cause cause like it was very clear. Robin invited me, but you know, like I talked myself out of it by the end of the call. I'm like, was he trying to sell me, right, with, you know, but did
0: he just sell me a very expensive $25,000 right. ticket or, or am I going for free and speaking? I right. don't remember.
1: Right. And so what was so great was the next morning, his assistant Sherry Skern sent me um, the invitation to speak. And so like when you talk about cool things, You know, when I was eight years old, I begged a guy in a garage sale until he gave me a Tony Robbins tape set. Two months ago, I spoke with Tony Robbins on the same stage. What the hell? That's cool. Yeah.
0: That is cool. Yeah. So we could talk about Alex and the Sharpen Institute and all the stuff you're doing all day long. Hmm. However, I find the best entrepreneurs are observers. So I love to ask my guest, who is it out there? Not somebody who's part of your business. Who is it out there that you
1: observe where you say, wow, they're doing something really cool? Hmm. Gosh, there are so many entrepreneurs that are doing really interesting things. Um, you know, I think the easy answers are the easy answers. You know, everybody these days can, can point to somebody like an Elon Musk who's doing amazing things. Um, I love Peter Thiel who wrote uh, Zero to One. And I think any entrepreneur who's not reading Thiel is missing out on probably one of the generation's greatest entrepreneurial minds, maybe one of the greatest entrepreneurial minds in history. Uh, the way he writes about uh, entrepreneurship is amazing. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, I, I'm personally affected right now by someone, by Joe Polish. Uh, he runs this, this organization called The Genius Network, and I joined it in 2013. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a place where you pay $25,000 a year to be a member. and. A friend of mine, Kevin Donahue, had, had been trying to, to get me since 2008 to join it. I finally did it. And I remember the night before I went down, you know, the room has some of the top entrepreneurs in the world. Some of the biggest thought leaders out there right now. You know, Peter Diamandis, is, SpaceX is a sure. member. Um, you know, they did an event. Elon Musk attended. Ariana Huffington was in attendance. You know, Tony Robbins in attendance. Like, that's, that's a totally different type of event. And, uh, And I admire Joe because what he's done is he's created an event and an atmosphere where he is really personally transparent. And, you know, when you're a member of Genius, you go to the the annual event once a year, which is um, about 300 people. And then twice a year, you go to a 40 or 50 person room. And here's what's happened since I've been in that room since 2013 is that I've watched Joe's level of transparency and awareness of himself go up exponentially each year. He's doing a tremendous amount of work and both on himself and on what he's passionate about. And he's created this atmosphere where the people who are on the bestseller list, the people who are writing the scripts, the people who are running the billion dollar organizations feel totally transparent and feel like they are among friends. And um, that's changed my life. Just being able to have that group has changed my life. I'll be honest with you, Tom. If I wasn't a part of Genius, I wouldn't have written that book because inherent, insane first and final edition is a risk. If nobody does anything with it, I look like an idiot, right? (laughs) And so it needed some horsepower to get started. So the first 50 people were all in Genius Network. But there's a picture of Dave Asprey who's in the news every day today for Bulletproof Coffee, Dave Asprey is handing my book to Daniel Amen, who, who is like the number one guy you know in nutrition today and the number one brain sciences researcher in the world are holding my book in a picture because I'm a member of Genius. And... Um, You know, that's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty amazing organization that, that Joe's built. And you don't build a group like that unless you're willing to be incredibly vulnerable yourself. And I've watched him do that in the past two years. It's been inspiring.
0: No, that was great. So the other question I love to ask all of my guests is in addition to being great observers, I think entrepreneurs want to do more than just make money. I mean, wealth is great, but I think they also want to leave their mark. So I always ask people, what is it that you do
1: to contribute to the greater good? Sure. Um, you know, I think that uh, the, the way that we put out our content, we attempt to do that. So everything that you can buy from us, you can get free. Uh, if you go on YouTube, you can see the entire entrepreneurial personality type content. Um, you know, you, you can't get the worksheets and all of the the details, but we give everything away. And so, as a result, when you look at most of our free content, the traffic is from third world countries. And we actually do um, some some exposure stuff, and we work with some people there to let let people know who we are. And so, mm-hmm. I'm really proud of of how much of our content is consumed from from people around the world. And so. I think that if you're making a difference in your business, if your product is good, if when somebody says, should I buy it, the answer is hell yes, not maybe, then you're making a contribution. So so I think that's a huge part. Um Katie and I are really active with charity. You know, I, I support the Center for Child Protection here in Austin, or we support the Center for Child Protection here in Austin. Uh, at one point we were Habitat's largest corporate donor. Um, we've, we've worked with a lot of different, different groups here. But the thing that we've done consistently is since 2009, um, The person who taught me how to speak. So I made millions of dollars speaking. And when I was 13 years old, I got into Rick Lara's speech class at Irvine High School in Orange County. And for four years, I was in his class. He taught me everything I know about speaking. He's still my coach. He's been my coach for 29 years. He's my wife's coach for the last five years. He just came out and worked with her recently. And, um, So we support the Santa Ana High School speech team. He moved from Irvine to Santa Ana, but he still runs the same program that he did when I was there. And so uh, you know, everything that they need each year, the medals, uh, their scholarships, um, t-shirts, uh, the the sashes for graduation, uh, a number of them really don't have a lot of money. It's a it's a pretty, pretty underprivileged school. And so we also provide some funds for uh some of them to go to prom and some of them to just kind of Feel like normal students, and so Rick administrates all that. I've known him since I was thirteen, and uh, it's like the coolest thing that we get to do.
0: Oh, that is that is awesome, and yeah.
1: And I didn't realize that you were also a Southern
0: California boy. Yeah, so I grew yeah. up in Southern California. Oh, very
1: funny. cool, very so, cool.
0: Uh, Pasadena, Arcadia area, cut yeah, out kind of the well. two ten freeway. I went to Arcadia High, so. Uh, Anyway, it is such a pleasure that we reconnected and that I got to have you as a guest on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. You have done a lot of cool things, and I really think anyone who listened to this interview had to have been inspired because you shared so much stuff. And I hope that people will go and look up what you have to offer on YouTube and beyond. And the lucky people will get their hands on one of the 500 copies of Entrepreneurial Personality Type, and they have to share it with 100 people but I say a thousand people. <laughs> there we go. So it has to be passed forward. I think that's a great idea. I love the whole idea of anything we can pass forward, whether it's a book, whether it's an idea, whether it's a hug. I think anything that we can pass from one human to another, I think is a really good idea. So I wanna I wanna track and see where where the success of this book goes, because it really is a great idea. So Alex, if somebody listened to this and they're like, I gotta have more, I gotta know about this Alex Chafin, we know they shouldn't call you for coffee to pick your brain. <laughs>
1: But where can they find information about you? Where's, where would you send somebody if they want to know more? There's two places. So our corporate website is sharpen.com and that has everything. It's C-H-A-R-F as in Frank, E-N.com. But if you want to know more about yourself and more about the entrepreneurial personality type and see some of our, our cooler stuff, you can go to the Entrepreneurial Personality Type Facebook group. It's administrated by us, and you can get there as a shortcut, We are com. And uh, a lot of my free videos, a lot of our more current information, we throw it up there. It's kind of a a small insiders group, and we'd love to have you join.
0: So thank you. And again, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. To everybody who listened, I always say we wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for the audience. Thank you very much for tuning in. We're going to be back in a couple of days with another interview with somebody just as cool as Alex Sharfin. But in the meantime, I want you to go out there.